radio for the Agile community. www.agile.fm Welcome to another episode of Agile FM and today I have a real treat um, on, on my show. It's uh, Gerald M. Weinberg, Cherry Weinberg. Um, he doesn't really need an introduction, but just for you know some audience who might not be familiar with his work, he won several awards. Uh, for example, the Warner Prize, the Stevens Award. He's also a charter member of the Computing Hall of Fame in uh, San Diego. Cherry uh, wrote more than 40 books and over 400 articles. Uh, some of my favorites, if I could just point them out, is the Fieldstone Method, Exploring Requirements and Are Your Lights On. He's an authority on management, requirements, problem solving and uh, those other topics. Some of those topics I'd love to explore with him, but uh, first and foremost, welcome to the podcast, Jerry. Well, I'm glad to be here. Awesome. So what I would what I would like to talk about is uh, maybe just a, um, if we're segmenting the the conversation a little bit, we have um, management. Maybe talk a little bit about management. Uh, you have a blog going. It's the secret of consulting. Blogspot.com, and um, there are some of the rookie mistakes on one of your, your most recent uh, posts there, and some of the rookie rookie mistakes. Uh, uh, written by somebody else, but you basically summarized those that you had one of the rookie mistakes and that was micromanaging. Yes, I mean, that's a, an ailment mm -hmm. that uh, pervades our industry. Mm -hmm. And uh, one of the problems arises from uh, the idea that you want to have someone be a manager of programmers, they ought to be a programmer themselves. Uh, this question has been asked for me for 50 years or more. And uh, in, in a general way, I don't think it's required. That, uh, but what's required is that the manager let the programmers program and uh, allow them to do their work, their professional trained work. And sometimes when you get a you pick your best programmer and you make them a manager or team leader, they're prone to micromanaging. And especially if an organization is just starting out something new, like Agile for them is new, and you've got a manager who maybe was a programmer, but they, before they were ever doing Agile, they don't understand. They think the old way, they're constantly saying things like, well, in the old days we used to do this, and you ought to do it this way and that way. And it tends to destroy the whole idea of what you're doing. That's right. Uh, so you have to be aware of that. And uh, it requires a special kind of person to be able to let uh, people, for example, if you're starting out with Agile, you're going to make some mistakes. You know what some of those mistakes are. And uh, you got to let them make the mistakes and not just jump in and say, well, I knew we shouldn't have done that and blah, 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 and here's how the old, the old timers used to do it. Um, so that's, uh, that's the big, to me, the number one yeah. mistake managers make. Right, so micro, micromanagement is, is in our industry, obviously, from, a, from an agile perspective, uh, self-organization, uh, one of the topics that are being pushed, obviously, as a leadership management style. However, with, you started your career in the 1950s uh, with, with IBM, right? So way, way back. And 
you summarize this as like micromanagement as one of your one of your mistakes uh, or the mistake in the, in the industry maybe. Um, why do you think it is that still today so many uh, managers, so many people are, are still falling into this trap and not listening to uh, to advice we have gathered such as yours over all these years? Well, I think the question is even deeper than our industry. Uh, I, I don't know if you have children. I do. Uh, you have kids? Yes, I do. How old are, how old are your kids? Eight. Eight years old. Well, do you ever manage your child? Say it again. Do you manage your child? You're eight years old. I mean, you see parents do that all the time. Mm. Uh, you, you don't want them to get hurt. Right? You don't want them to make a big, big mistake in their lives. And so you step in and try to micromanage them. And we grew up like that. And so I think it's a very common thing, not just in, in our software business, but everywhere. Right? Mm -hmm. uh, now, one of the reasons uh, choosing uh, leaders and managers, I like to have people who have grown children. Yeah. You know? So no, we're kind of a young business. But... But if you if you have grown children, or in my case, grown grandchildren, mm -hmm. hopefully you've learned not to micromanage by them. Yeah. Because you see, you see it doesn't work. It, it only backfires on you all the time. So I think one of the reasons we get so much micromanagement is we have a lot of young team leaders, a lot of young managers who don't have children. Uh, I had a client once, I won't tell you who it was, but it's a big software company. And, and uh, some of their projects failed and some succeeded, and they couldn't figure out why. And so they asked me to uh, come in and advise them about that. So I said, give me uh, your successful project managers to talk to, and let's see what they have in common. Well, there were four projects, there were four managers, and they were all middle-aged women. Mm. They'd all raised, I, I said, how do you succeed in managing? And they said, well, it turned out they said, we've all raised teenage boys. Mm. And, and uh, we, we just treat our people the way we, because they're all teenage boys. Right. <laughs> and we learn, you know, not to micromanage them. And so I know how to handle them. Yeah. yeah. So I think it's a lack of experience in uh, managing, leading people generally that leads to this. Mm -hmm. Well, there's, I think there's the term out there, the helicopter parents, right? So the ones that are basically like in helicopter over uh, their kids and, <laughs> and micromanage them. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, you have that always the problem because if you're too far away, you don't know what's going on. Mm. so great, because they've been sold, you know, somebody that's really, mm -hmm. and this is so great, 
I've got this project that's a disaster. Right? It's this first project we ever had, so we're going to start this new thing on this project to rescue it. Mm-hmm. Okay, well, that's the worst possible thing to do. Uh, you, you, because they're learning. Right? You start something new, riding a bicycle, programming a new language, using a new development environment. Mm-hmm. You need to make some mistakes to learn. Mm-hmm. Every, everybody makes mistakes. Of course. of course, of course. But if it's, a, it's the most important project, and it's as big as a, you, you don't know. If they don't succeed, you don't know if it's because of the project or fact what they were doing. So you give them a project, hopefully that's not too important. If they make a mistake, they screw it up, okay, chalk it up to learn. Mm-hmm. So that's one big mistake. Yeah, oh, definitely. Um... I want to touch maybe on a on another topic, and uh, I I got exposed to your literature, to your writing, uh, especially on requirements, and that started. That's how I started. Me personally got an entrance into your work, and that was the Exploring Requirements uh, book, um, which came out, I believe, in the nineteen nineties. Um, now, with the Agile Manifesto of two thousand and one, an industry that has significantly shifted to iterative, incremental, and agile development practices, are there, are there any things you would, um, you would highlight out of your book, out of that requirements book, because there is a, there's a drastic change in how requirements are being captured these days than they were in the past. Do you think there is any, any advice from your end where you feel like that is an important thing about requirements in the agile world? And maybe anything you feel like got better, maybe some things that got worse? Okay, well, one of the things that definitely got better for a lot of people was learning to do requirements incrementally. Mm-hmm. You know, build a little bit and see how it is, get some function, get some interaction with people. And one of the reasons that's been good when they do that <coughs> is uh, the obvious one, that if you try to do a, a waterfall, let's say, where we get all the requirements at the beginning, and then we build it, no changes, nothing. Well, it doesn't work. That's the only thing wrong with it. It's a wonderful idea. If it worked, it would be great. It would be right? great, yeah, it would be great. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I mean, being able to teleport from one place to another would be a great idea. You know, we could meet together in New York, and i just put a button, and I'd be there, and we could talk. And that's a great idea, right? Mm-hmm. But we don't know how to do it, right? And the same way, in general, we don't know how to do all the requirements up front. And also in general, we don't know how to do requirements. Now, one of the mistakes, I think, that some people have made in Agile is the, I forget what the original term was, but I call having a customer surrogate, a person, one person who represents the requirements. They tell you what the customers want. So, well, that again, kind of reproduces the same old mistake. Mm-hmm. Okay, because if this one person has a blind spot somewhere, it has a blind spot there. Right? Mm-hmm. And it's the kind of process these days, it's unlikely the person will know it and they need help. 
So, you have internet development where the the uh, agile team, the developers, are in contact with the, the, the customers and are going to be customers of the users of their product. Uh, they can also be doing, in their minds, requirements. Now, it doesn't mean you don't want to have everybody putting in stuff just because they had an idea and they're going to apply it where we found that they would get mm-hmm. huge, huge irrelevant requirements because the programmers would go to a user conference and they'd have little conversations with someone and said, wouldn't it be nice if we did this? And they'd put it in without telling anybody. Mm-hmm. And then somebody else else would get another one. Uh, so it's got to, I think the job of that surrogate is to control the flow mm-hmm. of requirements. But everybody needs to be gathering, listening mm-hmm. all the time. And the book is really about how you do that. You know, and, and how you listen, how you, what kind of questions you ask, uh, how you test the answers, mm-hmm. so on. And not just talking to people, but also participating, sitting down with the people while they're trying to use maybe the predecessor system mm-hmm. or do the job that they're doing, and so on. Get, getting involved. And um, if, if some people I see go to Agile, and one of the Agile approaches, and I think it's a way, well, we don't have to have our developers meet our customers at all. Mm-hmm. We can keep them isolated, uh, and then they won't be bothered, you know. Mm-hmm. Well, that's, that's not the point. Yeah. Okay. Not the point. Yeah, so there were also other techniques in your book, like, for example, the, the global requirements, right? So there's a lot of... Uh, deficits I see when I work with teams um, around that topic, right? There's a lot of functionality is being described, but not system-wide um, requirements. So there, there, there's definitely something uh, in that book that is beneficial for for current work. What do you think about other techniques? I think that came uh, up a little bit after your uh, your book. In this case, uh, use cases and user stories. Do you have an opinion about those? Um, uh, they're not the be-all and end-all. And some people, that's just a mistake that people make. They think, uh, but, but that's, it's another technique. Anything you can do is fine. Right. And, and that's helpful. can be helpful, but if you start believing that you have one technique that solves all our problems, you're in trouble. <laughs> you know? Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah, not, there's no one-size-fits-all. When you, when you started writing about requirements, when you started working, this, there was a very different technology in place. Uh, there was, you know, mainframes and, and so forth. Mm-hmm. Um, and then towards the 2000s, the technology has significantly changed. Would you consider anything to be done right now differently in, this, in the current landscape, uh, considering that the technology has changed so drastically? Would you do anything different in a requirements approach these days? Or would you think the, the old processes, the old ideas are still... Um, well, yeah, the, the book yeah, is not really technology dependent. That's right. The techniques we have there. Um, we, we didn't just start writing that, you know, the day of, two days before the book came out. <laughs> we, we, we've been learning, learning that for years. Yeah. And uh, we haven't found... Um, 
so far, um, you know, we're in touch with a lot of readers. We haven't found anything in the book that's not relevant still. Yes, okay. and I, 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 I'm just, uh, I just want to ask questions from an, from an agile perspective. I myself use the book as is uh, today as I was using it 20 years ago. Mm -hmm. So there is, there, yeah. is the, there is the depth and, um, and also the, the independence of any kind of technologies, right? But we do see teams that capture, um, let's say, requirements and electronic tools these days, very different than uh, we used to. I mean, I used to document things in, in war documents and so forth. Yeah. And, that has drastically changed to very uh, collaborative tools these days, uh, online and cloud-based well, and so forth. Well, well they're, they're called collaborative, but they're, they're potentially collaborative. Mm -hmm. it, it doesn't mean that the people actually collaborate when they're using them. And it's often a, a way of keeping the people apart. Yeah. Uh, so for example, one of the things you have in larger projects is you'll get arguments between one group and another group. How things should be defined, who should, who should do this, who should do that. And uh, one of the ways that managers attended to deal with that is to use technology to keep the people separated so they don't have to deal with anger and stuff like that, which is, you know, just poor management. They don't know how to deal with that stuff. But I, I have to say that um, we... Um, when we started in the business, it, one thing, it, it was quite different. Uh, there's the kind of things we, well, we often made the mistake of relying on one person to tell us what the requirements were and just listening to what they said. So over the years, we developed these techniques for extracting information, which is what you want. And, and it's tough mm -hmm. because you're really talking about the future. You know, in other words, you're building a system that's going to be used tomorrow, not yesterday. Right. Yeah. So if something changes, you you try to anticipate what might change so that your system will be useful mm. in the future. And um, one of the, I guess it's a deep mistake that people make in doing requirements is they, they act as if they know the future. Mm. Yeah, yeah. 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 Nobody knows the future. Yeah, that's that's the flaw, right? Uh, that's yeah. The, yeah. So you build the system. Part of your requirements has to be that the system be flexible enough so that something that you don't know is coming, you can deal with. Uh, you know, well, who knows how to do that? I mean, that's that's hard, but. Uh, the way we build stuff sometimes doesn't take that into account um, because we might have a customer representative who's very sure of this and that. Mm -hmm. uh, I have an example. Two days ago, uh, we have a new bank and we just got everything transferred to or in the process of it. And I get a letter from them and say they decided to change the name of the bank. Mm. Well, who knew they were going to change the name of the bank? And along with that, they changed the bank routing number and our account number. Mm -hmm. Okay. Now think of all the changes that might have to be made to code in their system and in our systems and in millions of customer systems. 
There was no questioning us about it, whether we wanted to do this or what would be involved. So, and they made some assumptions about <clears throat> what would make the change easier on us. Right. Well, not all their assumptions were correct. <laughs> and, and I'm still struggling with this. So, uh, there, I don't know, maybe there's a certain humility. Uh, <clears throat> Edgar Dykstra wrote a Mm. Once wrote an article about the humble programmer, and I think that's a good, a good thing. Yeah. You can have a, uh, uh, now with Agile, I, I've noticed mm -hmm. that there's a little less chance that you will be too arrogant as a team mm. because you know one member might think he knows the future, but it's more likely that somebody will say, "Well, Jack, uh, what happens if so and so? What happens?" You know, and, and they're a little more humble. Uh, doesn't always happen because sometimes your Agile team is not really running as a bunch of equal collaborators, but one person dominating the others and just mm. ordering them around and so on. And that's not what the intention was. Yeah. Well, yeah, so especially in the innovative space, right? The more important it is when you're building really innovative uh, solutions uh, to, to stay humble and not trying to aim to think that you know um, mm -hmm. the future. Let's talk about something else. One of my favorites is the Are Your Lights On? What a, mm -hmm. what a classy book about problem solving and how you approach problems, right? And uh, uh, even the title of the book um, in the beginning, you know, mm -hmm. it, it, it's just fantastic. If you uh, see the title, you don't know what you expect, but then once you go through the metaphor in the book and you, then all, everything comes together in a way that you will never forget the title of the book. Mm -hmm. Um, you're setting a very nice tone in terms of problem solving here and you evaluate issues, uh, how to evaluate issues in general. The days in 2018 when we're recording this are very hectic, uh, people don't seem to have a lot of time these days anymore, uh, very fast decisions they're making and when somebody reads through this particular book, which I love and I always remind myself to go and, and read a few pages of that, sets the tone, it's also calm, right? And uh, so. How do you think this impacts today's decision-making, this high-speed and very fast approach and quick problem-solving? And in this book, Are Your Lights On, goes really like behind the scenes. Um, yeah. Well, <clears throat> okay, first of all, <clears throat> as you see in all my books, language I find is very important. And when you say quick problem-solving, no, what you're really saying is quick attempts to solve problems. Right doesn't mean you solve them. Yeah. I mean, again, it's like the magic button, right? I mean, oh yeah, well, let's give us a button that says solve problems. We get a problem. We don't even know what the problem is. Let's hit this button and it's solved. Right? Solve it. Well, the only button like that is, uh, is the suicide button. I mean, <laughs> if, you're dead, if you're dead, you don't have any problems anymore. <laughs> as far as we can. If you're going to stay alive and live with a system you're building, You've got to really solve the problems, not some superficial gloss. And one of the problems is management, who tends to reward activity versus actual solutions. Mm. And we see a lot of movement. You know, I get, somebody tells me he's got a great program. I know he's great because he's always works after midnight. You know, when I and he's always like, why is he working after midnight? Because yeah. he's a crappy programmer. And he keeps making mistakes, and he has to keep fixing them. 
you know, I mean, so if you if you have that kind of view, you're not going to get anywhere. The whole idea, uh, really, I guess, uh, the, the Are Your Lights On is a requirements book in the sense that one of the things that guides us is when we write requirements, we want the requirements to be in terms of what problems you're trying to solve, not solution ideas. In other words, at the requirements level, you're not telling the programmers how to do this, mm-hmm. but what they're trying to accomplish. Right. Okay. So if they don't have a good, if they don't have, write the requirements in terms of what is the problem we're trying to solve in a d- definition, you know, we have a way of defining what is a problem. If they don't have that form, then they're not usable. You can't test whether they've actually done it or not, right? Mm. You know, we talk a lot about test first stuff and getting testers involved early. Well, if you have requirements that say uh, the system ought to be fast, yeah. What the hell are you supposed to do? Yeah. Yeah. How fast is fast? Mm-hmm. Right? You know. Uh, so, in, what is the problem you're trying to solve with the speed? Right? Mm-hmm. And, and then you have a chance of getting a good development that, that solves the problem mm-hmm. rather than just a claim, oh, yeah, this is fast. Yeah. And maybe not everything has to be fast, maybe only a few pieces of it. Right. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Just the, the thorough uh, asking uh, the techniques you're using, right? Um, Self organization, uh, we touched on earlier in, in agile teams, is is the preferred way of uh, for teams to work mm-hmm. autonomously. Um, how would problem solving fit into that if we're working as a team? Well, first of all, <clears throat> I totally believe in self organization mm-hmm. of, of, of technical teams, uh, but I don't believe that just putting a bunch of people together in a room and say, okay, organize yourselves, is going to work. It's just like selling a surgeon, you know, a person who said, well, you want to go to medical school, you don't need all that. Just take this knife and cut open the person's head and remove the bad stuff. <laughs> you know, I mean, it, it requires a lot of interpersonal skills to be self-organizing effectively. And we tend not to uh, first of all, choose people who are any good at that. We choose them on the basis of technical ability. And often, like me, when I started many, many years ago, I went into computing. So I wouldn't have to deal with people because I didn't understand anything about people mm-hmm. and how to get along and how to compromise or not compromise or whatever. And so we, we're starting with a group of people who are often chosen with no particular ability to work with other people. Mm. And we throw them together and say self-organize. Uh, that's not a very effective way to do things. Right. People uh, need some training. We, that's what we've done here. You know Esther, she's now teaching the problem-solving leadership. See, in leadership, it's, it's not about bossship. Mm. <laughs> it's not about, right? Yeah. You know, it, it's, it's not how to be a slave driver or mm. whatever, or how to inspire people, or it's how to work with other people, take the lead in, in this self-organizing. Mm. 
Mm. And self-organizing, one way to look at it is, some people say, well, there's no leader. It's for everybody who's a leader. Mm-hmm. At each given moment, there's some new kind of leader that's needed. Sometimes you need a little cheering up of people. Sometimes you need a new idea. It's what leads. Mm-hmm. Right? Uh, sometimes just getting everybody to slow down and relax is what the kind of leadership you need. Mm-hmm. And so many, many leadership acts and some people are good at one, some are good at another. So if you have a self-organizing team, the leadership moves around from person to person as they work, as mm-hmm. the job requires. And uh, we haven't really, other than our work and two other people, uh, have not really put that in as essential part of the training for Agile. Mm-hmm. We just say self-organized, but we don't. In theory, a coach might do that, but a lot of it, you know, we have, you know, we have edge coaches, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. A great, a lot of them, a high percentage of people who call coaches, just more potential leaders who come and boss people around and stuff and don't really how to self-organize. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, so, okay. yeah, it requires it requires a little bit of a skill set, right? I always debated with myself: should I? Would it be okay to have, let's say, a bunch of three-year-olds self-organize? I don't know if <laughs> I don't know if something good would come out of it, right? I, well, they do actually. Yeah. Okay. You go to a preschool and put a bunch of three-year-olds in a room and with a bunch of toys. And they self-organize. They do. They do. If, but what about the goal? Do they have a shared goal? They do very well. Okay, so just about self-organizing. Mm. We're talking about self-organizing and doing a good job of it. Mm. That's right, yeah. Um, the book which really influenced my writing myself is The Fieldstone Method. Um, that, that is the last book I want to just touch on with you a little mm-hmm. bit. Um, I, I have assembled a fieldstone wall myself, and I would assume you have two writing that mm-hmm. book. Mm-hmm. Uh, there was a, a lot few. of... A few. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, I did a lot of chiseling. I did a lot of adjustments and getting the fieldstones right. It's not an easy job. Um, what how did this this analogy of writing, which is extremely helpful, of picking up fillstones over all over the place over over a period of time and writing a book out of that? How, how did that inspire you, and what do you hope in achieving with this book? Because okay. it's so because it's so different to your other work. Okay, well here's what happened. See, uh, <clears throat> a number of my books, and then maybe the better ones, or at least the better selling ones, started. When somebody, I was working, coaching somebody, and, and at a certain point they said, you know, you know so much about this. You, why don't you write a book about it? That's how my consulting book was written. Uh, you know, I, just, I never thought of writing now. Stuff I've been coaching uh, mm. consultants for many, many years. Well, I've been coaching writers for a long, long time and writing myself. 
And um, you know James Bach, right? You know who James is? No. You know the testing guru? Mm, yep. James, James's father is a famous writer, uh, bestsellers, and um, James grew up around his father was writing, and sort of uh, what you, you could expect, he, his father had a certain style of writing, certain way of working and so on, and I think James kind of picked that up and thought that's the way he should write. Well, every writer has to find their own way. Okay? And James uh, was not finding his way. He was, he was, uh, he had a very lucrative uh, offer and an advance from a publisher for him to write a book on software testing. And he wasn't doing it. And it was bothering him. He felt he owed them $30,000 that they had given him and he hadn't produced a word. Wow. And um, he was really stuck. So I said I would work with him. And um, he came out here, out uh, here in my living room. We sat for a couple of days. And he asked me, well, how do you write the book? And I explained to him. <coughs> I thought about it. And the first thing I said was, well, it's like building a field stone wall. And, and he looked at me with this dumb look and he said, what's that? What's a field stone wall? Uh, uh, and, but of course, he knew what it was, but he didn't know the name. Everybody seen them. Uh, so <clears throat> I explained to him, I went through everything. Uh, and he said, Well, haven't you written a book about this? Wow. So yeah. I basically wrote down what we talked about for a couple of days <coughs> how I write and how other people, or the variants that other people have used. Mm. And so, I like that when my writing comes out of real experience, you know, I'm not, uh, mm. if you write, you know, I mean, I get, would want to be writers who say to me, I'll tell them, why don't you do so-and-so? And they're, they're stuck and they'll say, oh, but uh, I was taught to do it this way, certainly. And I say, well, who taught you that? Well, my English teacher, you know, in high school taught me. Yeah. And I said, and how many books did your English teacher publish? And then you go, oh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Right? I mean, if you, you know, and I'm not saying that people should write books the way I write books. And the big message of the book is you've got to discover your own way That's that right. works for you. Yeah. Some of the things that I do might be things that you can do and other things you might do just the opposite. Yeah. But it applies also to programming and the software. So, you know, you said you built the wall, you did a lot of chiseling, mm-hmm. a lot of fitting and so on. And one of the reasons you did that is because you didn't start with a big enough pile of stones. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah. yeah. A different approach is to gather about three times as many stones as you need. Right. And then when you need one of them that's just this big, you find it instead of chiseling it. Right. 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 Yeah. And which depends on which kind of work you like to do. <laughs> <laughs> right? Yeah. Well, it depends uh, on the size of your yard, how much you can, you know. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm. yeah. And what your source of stones is. It's mm. hard to find the same way with mortaring versus 
not mortaring walls. Mm. You know, a wall that's not mortared at all is going to last a lot longer, assuming it's well built. Right. Because mortar is what deteriorates in a, in a, in a wall. Yeah. But mortar, you don't have to chip. So you just stick a lot more mortar in there. Right. And it's a weaker wall. And maybe it'll be only last four years instead of 100 years. Mm-hmm. And maybe you don't care. Yeah. Right? But... Um, yeah, I did mine. I did mine without mortar. So yeah, uh, it is. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> is it still standing? It's still standing. Still standing. Yeah. yeah. And uh, the beauty of this this approach is, and uh, you know, you, you take it in as a as an author, let's say, even articles or books, and you see the technique how it how it actually applies. But if you really think about it, it's also for requirements work, right? There's also some, yeah, right. there's also right. some chiseling going on in the requirements work and right. there's some refinement exactly. and so, so we can also pick up field stones and put them in a backlog and, and the technique just works very, very well. And it has just shaped the way of how I think in, uh, in my career. And, um, I just want to thank you for writing the books I, and exposing them to, to us and, uh, is there any other book you're working on right now? Is there anything you can share? Is what? Well, I, I don't like to talk about things I'm working on because I don't know exactly where they're going to go. Mm-hmm. But I, I, I am trying something new uh, for me using the same method, but I'm actually publishing the book incrementally. Mm-hmm. It's kind of like an agile approach to the book writing. Mm-hmm. So I'm writing a book on design because I look and... Uh, I've been writing this book for 50 years. Oh, wow. Mm-hmm. Okay, at least 50 years. I, mean, I, have, I was going through my stuff in my files and trying to get reduced the amount of paper, and I got three huge file drawers filled with notes on design. Wow. All right? And that's not doing anybody any good. No. Okay? They need uh, to come how, out. How, how do I reduce this? <laughs> and that's like my piles of field stones, right? Yeah. Uh, but okay, but I've got to go through the reduction process. You know, wow, that's a big job. Mm. That's a big job. So I thought, okay, well, you know, what I'm going to do is do the job, let people watch it happening, mm. and so uh, by publishing online, which is one of the advantages, is I can do that. I can put up a small amount, charge a small amount. People want to look at it, mm-hmm. and if they buy early, they. Whenever I add something, they get it for nothing. Yeah. And then as it gets bigger, the price goes up. And so yeah. Awesome so idea. I have this book on design, uh, system design, which has uh, got, um, I don't know, I haven't checked today, 150 pages already. Okay. Uh, a lot of people have subscribed to it and they have um, uh, so that they, it's helped them do a better job designing. I still have a long way to go. I may not finish it in my lifetime. Right. But, but, uh, but on the other hand, the design, well, we're learning about design. It's never finished. Uh, mm. We're always learning more things. Always new things. So, so the book may never be finished, and that'll be okay. Mm. Well, maybe, it, maybe there will be some incremental release of something. It might not be finished, but maybe some incremental... Uh, sub releases or continue with the releases you're currently doing. Yeah, yeah. and, and uh, I don't know how big it will be eventually. Right, we'll never know. If it, gets, if it gets too big, I'll make it two volumes or something. Yeah. Because, because when I wrote about the software quality, I started to write a book. Mm. It 
and break it into two books. And I break each of those two books into three books. Books, yeah. And eventually got nine books. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> There's always something more. There's always something to discover, yeah. to elicit. Um, well, good luck with all your work. Good luck with all your fieldstones in your uh, in your drawers. And uh, uh, we're looking forward to those releases. And I want to thank you for uh, spending some time here with me on, on Agile FM. Well, good luck with your broadcast. I really appreciate what you're doing. Thank you. I think, I think our industry needs what you're doing very much, maybe more now than a lot of people don't read anymore. Thank you. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Much appreciated. Thank you. Okay. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to Agile FM, the radio for the Agile community. I'm your host, Joe Krebs. If you're interested in more programming and additional podcasts, please go to www.agile.fm. Talk to you soon.